Hey guys, I don't know if you're like me, but I love Count the Dings and everything it has to offer. I just can't find everything I need. You know, I know about Cinephobe and I know about the mailbag. And I know about Bomb, but that's all we do, right? I mean, no, we do so much more. What? Yeah, absolutely. If you sign up, patreon.com slash count the dings, you'll find a plethora of other content, fresh content, extended content, the OG pod overflow, the Cinephobe cold opens that we've taken and made their own thing to live only there the re-watchingtons bomb and it's full Ooh. and unadulterated cut early drops of cinephobe episodes and so much more said the og pod now is it new or is it old mace i'm glad you asked that it is a new incarnation mm-hmm. of the old og pod oh. so it's me zach trey Waz, tom i love those guys just like we always were going back to the true hoop days mm-hmm. we're recreating that magic recapturing it and putting it back out we're talking hoops we're talking pop culture and most importantly we're talking for 40 minutes for free mm-hmm. but then another specific patreon exclusive segment for every one of those episodes funny enough about that og pod you're getting tom and trey on mondays you're getting me and waz aka zosny on wednesdays a means floating in between i'm a floater you never know when you're gonna get a mean in those so you gotta listen to them all and what if i'm not sure what maze looks like because i've always thought he's a fat man with a fedora he's got a weird voice how can i see for myself what this maze character actually looks like it's crazy you don't know the answer to this mm. because it's the cinephobe pod youtube page what the ct5s on the cinephobe pod youtube page you can look at all of us you can get all the og pods on youtube too at count the dings one on youtube at cinephobe pod on youtube patreon.com slash count the dings gets you everything all in one feed you can link it to your spotify and now enjoy the show tom of padma tom Gale or Eric Repair, who do you want to be stuck in the Sonoran Desert with for 24 hours? Easy answer, Gale. feel like she'd have the right disposition, the bubbly, just very positive. I need an optimist. I'm going to need all I can help to keep my, I don't know, my temperament high and feeling good. I think Gale is, is my pick. What about you? Yeah, I mean, bad question. Easy answer. That's the problem. <laughs> This is Pack Your Knives. I'm Kevin Arnovitz. And I'm Tom Haberstroh. Tom, the finale from Tucson, Arizona, the Sonoran Desert. No encumberments, no rules, just four courses. As Evelyn said, just let me cook whatever the F I want. And that is what we saw. And we had a longtime guest judge and alt cuisine master, Eric Repair. We had our, our usual three, our triumvirate Top Chef judges. Uh, and we had Buddha, Sarah, who's rousing comeback from Last Chance Kitchen, placed her in the finals. And we had Evelyn Garcia, home field advantage. And as I said, kind of the carrying the chef Gregory, cooking on all cylinders, all taste profiles, beautiful and symmetrical and whatnot. That's where it is. I, I just want your early impressions. Are we going to be joined by a special guest, Tom? Please tell us. We are, Kevin. You buried the lead. Sarah Welch is going to join us later in a few minutes. 
she was kind enough to join us. We, we tried to get her on a couple weeks ago and she was unavailable to come on, but she was saying anytime, anytime. And she stayed on to the show. She hit the finale. So we are going to have Sarah on to the show. And no one had a crazier ride on Top Chef than Sarah. I mean, going from uh, one of the first picks from Kevin down to Last Chance Kitchen. I think she won seven or eight straight in Last Chance Kitchen to get back onto the show and earn her way to the uh, finale. We're going to talk to her uh, in a few minutes here. But, you know, the finale was... A classic finale. It was, uh, they were producing at a very high level. I actually, my scorecard here, Kevin, um, I had it as a tie if I was just doing points for each course who finished in first, second, and third. I thought Evelyn had a very, very strong performance. Um, And I actually had it as a tie in terms of points, but I gave it to Buddha just overall, uh, which ended up being correct. Buddha with the victory. I got to tell you, I let, let's just run through it because I, I had it decisively for Buddha. I had the first course, obviously the three Michelin star, as Tom said, he won that. Disclaimer, as always, we have not tasted the food. We're just sort of judging from presentation plus commentary. I had Sarah second with the venison and beef heart tartare, and I had Evelyn third with the scallop crudeau, though not a distant third. No, no, no. It was such a less ambitious dish. It was a crudeau. I know, but... It was a crudo whose scallops were not well salted. Like, I, I'm sorry, the other one was a venison beef heart tartare, making your own bread, churning your own butter, sourdough miso. Like, I, I don't even know, in, and by the way, I don't eat venison or beef heart, but I, I, I don't know in what universe that finishes behind a scallop crudo where the scallop wasn't salted. I thought that... They had much higher remarks for the crudo, even though this. It, I think one person mentioned that the salt it needed a little bit more salt. But no, a couple of people said the salt would be very welcomed, and the pal said the salt would be very welcomed, and Tom uh, Colicchio said it right off the bat. I, I just, I just like in terms of technical, in terms of like, I, I don't look. You and I didn't taste it. I, I just, there's no world where, I'm sorry, a scallop crudo with some shaved radishes and you know, finishes above a venison and beef heart tartare that look like that with homemade bread, churned butter, homemade sourdough miso. I mean, like, come on, man. Look, I'm getting this out now before Sarah comes and joins us. But I thought that she was told that her tartare was under seasoned as well. So she didn't nail her protein. And you can argue, hey, what's the difference between an uncooked scallop and an uncooked slab of beef? Or venison. Well, I mean, you have to, you don't just like chop up the heart. And I mean, you got to, you got to treat that. And I mean, it was just, it was unique. And she's making these elements out of nowhere. I don't know, man. Moving on to the second one. I had Buddha, then Evelyn, then Sarah. Second, I had Evelyn first with her crystal dumplings, a flawless dish. Um, Gail said it looked like little jewels in there with the shrimp and corn, corn broth and ho. Oha Santa oil and crispy ginger. Buddha had the laksa with cannelloni, lobster, king crab, carrot, butterfly, tuli, tuli, and then Sarah with the squash dumpling that just didn't quite hit the mark. A little too much going on. The pasta was a little too thick. They said. Um, so I had Evelyn, Buddha, then Sarah on that one. Yeah, I, I thought it was a pretty one, easy one to score. Yeah, the tweel. It was the butterfly twill. I, I, I was very amused by this dish because I loved how Repair, who's sort of a guy who came up in the 80s and 90s, 
you know, said, eh, reminded me of the 80s and 90s. And he's right, right? Like there is sort of, there is very much a kind of a Christian Bale American psycho. <laughs> this is Dorothea? Yes, dear. Courtney, you're going to have the peanut butter soup with smoked duck and mashed squash. New York matinee called it a playful but mysterious little dish. You'll love it. And then the red snapper with violets and pine nuts. I think that'll follow nicely. It looked like that food. However, I do agree that I think the 80s and 90s, I mean, we are drowning in 90s nostalgia right now. I have not read the Chuck Klosterman book yet. You might have. It's on my nightstand. The 80s and 90s coming back. I don't have a problem with a young chef like Buddha who can't be older than 30. It's new to him, but I, I, I was very amused by Repair's uh, uh, sort of critique of it. But yeah, it was the easy second place. And Sarah just kind of, I, I, you know, Three Sisters Salad is one of those things where it's like, does anyone really love it? Squash, corn, and beans. By the way, three things I love independently or prepared it, it, beautifully and creatively, but just sort of as a, you know, it's like I've said this about bean salad before. Nobody really likes bean salad. Nobody wants that. Um, but yeah, the squash dumpling uh, came in third. Um, uh, the Wita Coche Puree looked actually interesting. Uh, it was a good dish conceptually, but just uh, clearly was the weakest of, of the of the three. Um, third course, Tom, Mongolian lamb with eggplant from Buddha. We had goat curry slash mole with some uh, nopales and spiced squash seeds and raisin from Evelyn. And we had a rabbit ballotine um, from Sarah. I am sure you had, I've got to imagine you had it how I had it, which was Buddha, Evelyn, Sarah. That's correct. It hurts to see Sarah realize that her rabbit ballot ballotine wasn't cooking properly and she still had to go with the plate um, on the kind of the greens there, the herb salad with apricot and chestnut um, just wasn't cooked um, all the way through is a little uneven on the cook. But I loved her mentality on this. We'll probably talk to her about it, but just using the whole um, animal and no food waste. Um, I thought that was really clever as a through line to all our dishes, but yeah, you know, with the, with the, the goat wasn't cooked properly. They, well, I guess they said the goat was cooked well, but they wanted the, the mole curry to be cooked within it. Um, and it didn't really come in through and I gotta be honest, it, it wasn't the most pretty dish to look at. And I know we're not supposed to score it that way, but I, I kind of felt like the other dishes scored extra points there. No, I think you're allowed to, Tom. I mean, I think you're allowed to, to take into account presentation, but as Padma pointed out, I mean, I think kind of the beauty of a curry is sort of the protein almost braises in the, the, the sauce. Um, same, you know, maybe mole a little less so, but uh, it just, it was a topper, right? Like it was, it was really goat smothered in a curry mole sauce. And, and which frankly, listen, I, I, I never want to minimize the preparation that goes into mole. It's, it's, it's an incredibly intricate dish. And I imagine that, hey, I, I will eat Evelyn's mole all day. Um, but I think in terms of technicality, it's, you know, I mean, it, it's, 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 it's an okay dish. Um, yeah, to your point, I think I liked Sarah's menu the most. I really liked conceptually what she was doing, the way there was a through line. Um, as I did Buddha's and, and as I did Evelyn's, but I really, you know, with Sarah, it was really execution. Um, I mean, one thing I will say before we go to dessert is I, I disagree with you a little bit in the sense that I, I gotta be honest, relative to other finales, I don't think the cooking here was up to par. It just wasn't right. We had, you know, basically in terms of sort of orgasmic dishes, it seemed like Buddha's triple star 
Uh, hamachi with wine sauce, caviar, and radish was there. Um, Evelyn's shrimp and corn dumplings with crystal dumplings clearly had an audience there. I don't know that it was like transcendent, but other than that, I would say Sarah's acorn cake, which we'll get to in a second. Like, I, I mean, three out of 12 dishes were really A's. And I feel like in many seasons, the finale is just A after A after A. We are sitting here splitting hairs to determine, you know, we had some thuds. I mean, you know, a Ballantine that wasn't cooked correctly, a squash dumpling dish that didn't work. Both of them were Sarah, um, a goat curry, which kind of frankly was a little staff mealish, um, but, you know, just in terms of conception. Uh, Buddha's laksa, I looked fantastic. And clearly that, that was sort of a polarizing dish. Um, I, I think Padma was ready to declare it one of the best dishes of the night. Others were less impressed. And, you know, I mean, Buddha's dessert was a little underflavored. Um, the panna cotta from Evelyn was eh. So my point is, is I, I don't know that this was sort of a, a, a final for the ages, Tom. I don't think we'll we'll put this one in the vault and send it off to Cooperstown. You know what I mean? That's fair. That's fair. I, I thought that um, overall it was a, a good finale, maybe not perfect. And we've, we've seen some perfect ones. Um, the, the, I, I thought that Buddha, his pumpkin pie dish with the leaves was the most visually stunning dish I've seen all season. And the fact that it didn't land, um, I thought the caramel was a nice touch inside, but, it, but Buddha to me, if I, I guess I scored it a little bit strong for, uh, for Evelyn, uh, I think your overall points. Wait, who did you have first? I had Buddha for sure. For the dessert? Oh, for the dessert? No. I had the acorn cake from Sarah, which is by, by far, I thought it was, was, they were just raving on that dish. And then Evelyn's second and Buddha's dish third. And and I don't know how you saw it, but that's how I had it. Yeah. I mean, I look, Sarah, winner, I, I could have gone either way on Buddha and Evelyn. The desserts I find particularly hard to um, handicap from a non-taster's point of view, right? Other than to go by the judges. Uh, the judges' knock on Buddha's dish was the proportions were a little off, too much pumpkin spice, uh, spice cake, not enough maple caramel, uh, maybe Chantilly cream. Um, and then Evelyn, the, the knock was is uh, the panna cotta was too gelatinous, right? Even though the Benuelos themselves were gorgeous. So yeah, like you, I might have, it's just judging from their comments that, that Evelyn might have gotten a slight edge. But, but you know, it's funny. I mean, you know, one, two, three, and you've pointed this out in previous seasons. Uh, if, we were to, if we were distributing 10 points overall, it seems like it would be a 5-3-2 or a, or a 6-2-2. Um, it seemed like the, the, the favorite was Sarah's, uh, followed by Buddha and Evelyn very close together. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm fine with your, your rankings. I, but uh, it seemed like Buddha and Evelyn were both kind of neck and neck there. So Buddha comes out with the victory. I was a little surprised, but he wins just in the sense of uh, all-time chef testants. I wouldn't say this was the strongest field, but Buddha certainly was a deserving winner. He had four wins in this season, including the finale, and he had four top threes. So that's eight of the 14 competitions or challenges he finished in the top three, eight of the 14. Um, he had a couple bottom finishes, but just a really strong season for Buddha. Yeah, Tom, where does that rank like in terms of the legends? Is Buddha among the 19 champions? And granted, things have evolved over the years. Like, where does that place him in terms of dominance? It's got to be. It, I haven't done the math on it, but it's it's up there. Uh, he's definitely one of the better champions that we've had. I was surprised to learn that he had only won three times this season heading into the finale. Isn't that, doesn't that feel low for Buddha? 
It does. It's not the highest. I mean, uh, Paul Key in his in his season, he just just pretty much ran the table. Um, and so I think when you and and Melissa, Melissa, when she was on the All Stars, she had six wins before the finale, and then she won it. So um, yeah, Buddha, Buddha was I would say probably top seven um, in terms of all time contestants. I would say. So he would he would be in the in the upper echelon. I thought he had a really strong year. I enjoyed the whole Buddha experience, the kind of combination of haute cuisine from training from the masters combined with, you know, the kind of Malaysian cuisine, the, the laksa. There were so many nice notes that he brought from there. Um, Chinese heritage, Australian, just Oceania, that whole kind of region. It was a good experience. I, I enjoyed I enjoyed Buddha immensely. Um, you know, before we bring on Sarah, let's let's dish on the season. You know, I don't want to I don't want to insult anybody. <laughs> give me your from thirty thousand feet, your impressions. Give me the state of the union, Tom. Like like is, is top like the state of Top Chef is strong. I mean, where are we on sort of the season as a whole? Um, this is a show that's going to probably have as many seasons as there are lives. I mean, we are we are going to you know the, the show is not going away. It is right, a huge right. hit for Bravo. It is likable. Food is something that I don't think we'll ever. Uh, we have to eat every day. Um, it, it's a formula that works. I, I imagine it's pretty reasonable to produce. So so in the lifespan and the life cycle of Top Chef, where are we? I don't need fake conflict. I don't want contrived conflict. I don't want disingenuous conflict, but this show does need a little bit more conflict. It needs a little bit more um, just stakes to it. And because we love Last Chance Kitchen, we don't want to knock that. But it, it did feel that there was a lack of tension in this show, um, whether it was the stakes or whether it was just the competition. It didn't seem super competitive. And I think they've um, you know, bended towards that over the last few seasons with the all-star and, um, they're having a lot of chefs that get along well. And I think this season crystallized that I, I want to bring back some more villains. I want to bring back some people who are heels on the show, not necessarily in a, in a, uh, really dangerous way, but I do think that it is a little too nice. It, it felt like soft chef this year a little bit. Um, and I really think our next guest here coming up in a minute it would have been this season. You've mentioned this. It would really, really, really have benefited from her presence on the show because she is um, a really strong personality. And I felt like this season did lack a little bit of that pop. Um, and and Jackson, that storyline we forget because he was eliminated midway through the season. That was pretty compelling. The fact that he didn't have any taste or smell from COVID, and he was hiding it from his teammates. Um, that was interesting. But I would say. Of the Top Chef seasons that we have had, this would probably go in the bottom half of the most compelling TV we've watched on Top Chef. But I would say Buddha, the fact that he won, he was a very deserving winner. And I just wish we saw Sarah more. Whether it's villains or heels, you know, I'm not sure. I, friend of the show, Austin Tedesco, uh, we were at dinner the other night and he brought up a good point. And it's really about kind of the competitiveness. He, he sort of, you know, you remember in his first foray into the show, Kevin Gillespie sort of looking at the camera and saying, I really want to win. That if you think about the testimonials over the years, just the sheer desire of these chefs looking at the camera, and you got the sense of import and stakes from them, like winning was a big deal. And I started thinking about this season. Did any single time, did any of these chefs 
kind of look at the camera and say, I really want to win. I want to, I'm going in this challenge and I want to beat them. And I, and by the way, it doesn't have to be aggressive. It doesn't have to be mean, but I think what I've lost from the show and what I feel like the show has lost a little bit is just the sheer stakes that the difference between winning and losing Top Chef, you know, that Delta used to be really broad. And not that it was, oh, you're going to go back to your miserable life as a sous chef if you finish sixth and you'll never be heard from again in the culinary community. But I do think that it it has lost the sense of urgency that that, that those chefs sort of looking into the camera and saying, it's really important that I win. I've got to win. I, I won't, I, I'm going to go all the way. And, and I, I think that's something, we've talked about it a little bit. There, there's sort of a social function here, I think, yeah. because frankly, the cost of not winning is not that great. You can still go on and be part of this larger mm-hmm. diaspora of Top Chef people and do your fun things. And, and by the way, that's great. Like, I think, look, one of the things that Top Chef has done, that's not a bug, it's a feature, is it has given young chefs a platform to look. I'll be honest, Tom. I mean, Shota didn't win, and we'll, we'll, the less we say about his his uh, staff meal, the better. But I go on his Instagram videos all the time to get pointers for making sort of fish and Japanese food. Like I'm not, I'm not dismissing the value and, and just what a great development it is that these chefs. I don't care if you finish second or seventh or eighth or whatever, have an opportunity to kind of continue to communicate with the fan base to share their techniques, to share their passions for the food they do. But I think an unintended consequence has been that the stakes have never been lower for winning Top Chef. Hey, you finish eighth, come on back, you'll be a guest judge. Like, like, look, I don't, I'm not about humiliating eighth place finishers or anything. I mean, you know, but it's just like the prestige has been lost a little bit for winning or even getting to the finale. As long as you're part of the gang, you're part of the gang. And that's great. I mean, these are all talented chefs. I mean, the the 11th best top chef contestant on any given season is insanely talented. But I do think, to your point, yes, some conflict is really, really needed. But even devoid of conflict, I will just take, like, competitive juice. Like, I want to frigging crush this challenge. Right, and and that's born out of the tension or the yes the, yes it, yes like, you're absolutely if there's right. conflict that that you're you're bringing out your competitive nature when there's conflict there's someone you really want to beat because oh i can't stand that other person or i can't th- stand the way they cook or whatever it is the way they their approach and their temperament on the show in the room it did feel like we lost a little bit of that and you're right it's it's it does feel like the stakes of winning top chef have never been lower and i do think a lot of that is like you said the cost of losing you're still going to be part of the the diaspora, like you said. So let's get to Sarah. Let's do that. Let's actually talk to someone who knows something about this. Let's bring her on. Sarah Welch, who, look, Kevin, when we talk about <laughs> survivors on this show or people who have been so persistent, when you talk about, Kevin, that need to win, how about winning like seven, eight straight last chance kitchen challenges to get back onto the show. I'm very excited to have her here. Sarah has joined us from work. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on to pack your knives, Sarah. Congratulations on getting to the finale and producing at a very high level. I want to eat that acorn cake right now. Can you send it to me in this Zoom? Is that possible? Absolutely. Yeah, no problem. I'll get right on that. 
(laughs) (laughs) I don't know how much you've listened to the show, Pack Your Knives, this season, but we have been huge fans of yours. And so this is a huge privilege to have you on. I have binge listened to the entire season. Buddha actually got me hooked on it. (gasps) He was like, do you listen to Pack Your Knives? And I was like, no, I don't. And he was like, you got to. And so I started listening like pretty late into the season. We joke about it. I was like, do you just want me to listen to this because you want me to hear about you? Or, <laughs> <laughs> But it ended up being like a really fun thing that we kind of shared. It was great. I mean, what most surprised you about being on the show? Oh, gosh, so many things. I guess in the beginning, it surprised me how much went into the actual production of the show. Um, you're literally like in kind of complete quarantine from friends, family, um, and each other. And so it starts out as like this really lonely and alienating experience. And then by the end, it's the exact opposite. Um, and then I guess post-production, I was just really impressed with how authentically everybody was portrayed. Um, I think before you go on the show as a person, you're like, Oh man, I wonder if I'm going to get like, you know, the bad edit, but like everyone was portrayed so true to themselves. And I was so relieved. (laughs) Um, and embarrassed, but but also relieved <laughs> um, to know that they weren't like spinning us a certain way. I read that you, you tried out for Top Chef twice, or the first one you were the like four years before you actually got on. And I wanted to hear about that experience of auditioning for Top Chef and that road to getting there. Did you have like a a mentor, someone who looped you into the Top Chef universe, or how did you even get to that point? Yeah. So I was running a different restaurant in Detroit and got let go, um, like pretty dramatically. Um, and James Regato found my phone number and called me and we hadn't had much of a relationship, um, up until that point. And he was just like, you're going to be totally fine. Um, like, I know this is a hard time and I know this like sucks, but you're, you're going to be fine. And also like, we're holding like an open casting for top chef at my restaurant. Um, you should come and try out and, you know, being jobless. I was like, okay, sure. So I like went and did the trial cook. Um, and they loved everything, but they were just like, you're a little young. Um, and at that point, like I didn't have, um, much credential. Um, you know, I hadn't like been recognized by James Beard or won like any best new restaurant stuff aside from like the brief stint with eater at my, um, restaurant in Detroit. So, um, yeah, they reached back out this past year, um, kind of while we were surviving COVID, um, at Marrow. Um, and our other restaurant and they were like, now's the time. And I was like, really (laughs) now? Um, and I had agreed to open a restaurant with my fiance. And so I was just like, it's, it's a rough time. It's a rough time, but I did it. (laughs) At the risk of flattery. I I, I was was so happy you were back just because I don't know. I I think the show really relies on the voices of the chefs. Um, the food's going to look great. We can't taste it, which is the only failing of the show is, you know, I'm like, Project Runway, where I can see uh, the, the 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 fashion. This relies on taste, but so I think it's just the it, it's such a character driven show for that reason. Um, and I, I have I have loved your combination of self deprecation, self awareness, and your food looks great. And um, so I was I was so happy you worked your way through back through um, Quick Fire Challenge. Who was your best friend on the show? Oh, that's not that's like picking between your children. Oh, it's Robert. You picked Robert for the finale. Honestly, in the beginning, it was Robert. I think post-production, Buddha and I have just been talking so much. We joke that like Australian humor and Detroit humor is the same humor. Yeah, I think I'm really close with Robert. Uh, Buddha and I talk a lot. Just we're both kind of very analytical, I think. 
we kind of just like geek out about stuff and laugh about the same thing. So I would say probably those two. Yeah. What is Buddha? I found his food to be amazing. I mean, I drafted him number one overall on my team and Kevin drafted you and Robert number what? One in four you had that? Brutal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You guys got bounced in the same episode and then Kevin just absolutely demolished me in the fantasy points. Buddha, what's so fascinating about him to me is the way he cooks and how pretty it is and how technical it is. And he could have come off as a total snob and someone who was a scholar of Top Chef and just nerded out on Top Chef history. He could have come off as someone who was just unlikable. I found myself just loving that dude. And I feel like his personality was, I don't know, he, he just seemed a lot more likable than I thought just the on paper Buddha might seem. I don't know if that's a compliment. I don't know what I'm trying to get oh, at, but certainly. I just felt do you like do you get what I'm saying? It's just he's he's just super likable, but he could have the way he cooks and how perfect everything was, it seemed like he might have like a stick in his ass, up his ass or something like that. No, he's just a, a great dude, it seemed. Yeah, I think you get two different versions of him, right? Like I think you get um in the game Buddha and then you get Buddha immediately post game, right? And it's like those two people have the same bones and they're the same character, but they read totally different. So when you're in competition, like Buddha's not laughing at my shitty jokes and he's hyper-focused and he is spending all the time that I'm spending like joking around, <laughs> like you know, putting a ton of precision into his dishes. But that person is there when, you know, the clock goes off. And um, I think that the fact that they captured um, both sides of him is really important to that narrative, but it also is really him. And so I think when you're watching the show, so much of it is watching us cooking. And when he's cooking, he is very serious as he should be. But um, those moments outside of the competition, which for us was the vast majority of the time. I mean, we're filming for one or two hours um, at a time and we're around each other for for the balance of that. He, he is a fun, hilarious, like really authentically genuine and cool person. Something Tom and I have been talking about a fair amount. How competitive is it? And, and I asked this kind of on the heels of the Buddha question. Like, I, there were times in, in previous seasons where you just sensed that, and it's not so much that they disliked each other, but it was just competitive. And, and look, I, I'm friendly with a lot of Los Angeles chefs, and like, they can be salty people. They have egos. Like, you don't get into this business because you lack self-confidence. I mean, you get in because you want to make the best food. Hello, listener. Guess who's back? It's me, Anthony Mays, your favorite butcher turned podcast producer. And I'm here to talk to you about ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the most convenient way to get high quality meat and seafood that you can trust delivered straight to your doorstep, free shipping, vacuum sealed packaging. It's ready to go right then. It's ready to pop in the freezer. You get exclusive member deals and a variety of high quality cuts at an amazing value. Going to the grocery store can be a huge pain. You're usually in a rush at an inconvenient time. You're waiting in line at the meat counter. You're taking a number. Maybe this place doesn't have a number. You're jostling with fellow customers. You're trying to get that ribeye that you want or that nice piece of salmon. Maybe the butcher that you're dealing with has a bad attitude or something. I don't know. That was never me, I promise. But maybe it happens. ButcherBox takes all of that 
out of the picture. You are always prepared with meat and seafood in the freezer, and you're not going to find quality for this price anywhere else other than ButcherBox. So sign up at ButcherBox.com Dings, D-I-N-G-S, and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com dings and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S, to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Um, imaginable. And I'm just wondering, like, on the floor, how competitive it gets, or is it just kind of one big love affair, which is sometimes from the outside how this season looked? Yeah, I've heard you guys kind of speaking about how it's gone a little soft, and like I can, I can understand that. I, I think, you know, in talking about Buddha a couple seconds ago, the question is like, would the cut or the edit have been that ten years ago, or would he have been like a Marcel, right? Like, who knows, right? Like, we, we can't, we can't say. And like, a lot of what they choose to show is what they choose to show. But um, for me, this season seemed super authentic. Um, it is really competitive, but I think, um, you guys have noted that like post COVID the world is a little different. Like, I think we're all a little raw still. And I think that so much of the food community right now is uplifting one another Mm. because we know that we've just been through like a war, (laughs) like I miss restaurant wars, but like secretly not bummed at all because I reopened my restaurant nine times during COVID. Like the (laughs) the idea of opening a restaurant, like for funsies is like not my bag so i was like everybody's like are you bummed to miss restaurant wars and i was like truly no like i'd rather put all that stress and energy into the potential of reopening my restaurant for the next year <laughs> but so i think everybody is like a little tender and i think that um it's the same way where like damar maybe three years ago on top chef me taking his salt on day one of competition would have been like don't touch my salt whereas this time he was like <laughs> okay you know like i think everybody is a little raw, I guess is the word. This is my favorite explanation. It, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like, like w- what I hear you saying is, look, to be an intentional dick to, you know, a- another chef at this moment when everyone is having so much adversity uh, or facing so much adversity just to keep places open, to reopen, to, uh, you know, fulfill plans to open that that pre-existed COVID that like the idea of being overly competitive when everyone is just trying to just get back to par would be survive. Right. Would, would be unseemly. Actually, I, Sarah, this is why I'm so happy to have you on. Like this is, and now I feel like a total creep. Yeah. Now we're the dicks for being like, they should be going in each other's throats. No, don't. I love that version of the show too, you know? And like, I think, you want it. Like you want to see people really cutting their teeth to be there. I think sometimes my humor came off, like you'll see on social or on Reddit, like people are like, she doesn't care. It's not that it's that you're scared to care. Like we've all been through COVID trained to like tread lightly about giving a shit because you don't know, you just don't know if like this thing you, I mean, Evelyn, right. She shut a restaurant in COVID. It's like, you you just don't know if the things that you're putting the basket, you're putting your eggs in is going to fall out. And so at least for me, I'm so trepidatious about investing too much in anything. And I think that showed in the competition for me is that I, I was scared to really enjoy it. And I was scared to really invest in it because I was like doing the, the I'm going to break up with you before you break up with me thing for top Chef the whole time. Um, but it's also like, this is, 
you know, in the last season, they were in full quarantine. And I think what you get in our season is a little bit of the awkwardness of everybody being like social again. <laughs> Everybody's like, <laughs> yeah. how do we behave in public? Right. But the world is going through that. So I think it's, it's not, it's a lack of competitiveness out of compassion. And then also just like social awkwardness that everybody has right now. Of like, how do we be people again. What a lovely answer, Kevin. Now we're just going to have to just put that take to the side. That was that was a really well put answer to our question cuz I it, it did feel like soft chef a little bit, but it makes so much sense now that you put it that way. And I think to get to the actual season, um I had a couple like specific questions about this season if you could um just humor me. Jackson, true or false? Didn't you guys didn't know about his whole no smell, no taste thing until a reveal? I don't know if you were on the show at that point or if you were in Last Chance Kitchen, but did you know that he had COVID and he couldn't taste or smell? Robert and I knew, but we didn't know that it was like this big secret. When we were like they do, we were tasting his tartare every second of that first competition. We were the first, first team. Um, and he had said offhandedly, like, oh, my smell and my taste isn't quite there. And we were like, oh, he must have had COVID at some point. Like we didn't. So many people we knew had COVID, so many chefs that we knew had COVID that it was like, for us, it wasn't like blockbuster, like, it was just like, oh, bummer. Like, that's probably going to suck. But I think Robert and I knew and it didn't, it didn't really matter to us. Like, we didn't Mm. see it the way it was kind of like, it transpired over the course of the season or maybe how... It was like a bombshell. It was portrayed as a bombshell when he revealed to the group. Yeah. And it was portrayed like it was weighing on him in confessionals in a way that I don't think anybody anticipated, but that looking at it hindsight really makes a lot of sense as to why he was so lacking in confidence because he is so truly talented. Um, And, you know, I made a joke like midway through the season. I was like, Jackson, it was the ostrich egg thing. I was next to him and he kept being like, it's going to suck. It's going to suck. And I was like, if every time you said something sucks, like it goes like to the very top and you win, this is going to get really exhausting for me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And that continued to happen because I think he was just undercut. Like he just, he genuinely didn't know if what he was making was good. Um, Whereas like me, I was just being self-deprecating. Jackson like truly didn't know. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I was surprised to see post-production. And then honestly, the fallout on social, like how big of a deal it was to people. Because for me, it didn't, it didn't feel like he was like holding some big dark secret. I'm fascinated with the, the variance in mental exercise between quick fire and regular Top Chef. Where, and you made so many notes of it that, you know, th- th- there can be analysis by paralysis when you're prepared, when you have more time to prep. And I loved watching you on on, on Last Chance Kitchen. It was just kind of fun and, and, and just the sheer adrenaline jolt that clearly a company is trying to do something out of nothing in absolutely no time. I, I just wanted, wanted to hear you more on that because it was, um, I don't know, it, you had a great run. And for those of us who dork out on this stuff, it's like, you know, it's like you were this athlete who had this big 50 point streak every night for, for like eight weeks. Yeah. I think it was like fight or flight. Um, I like blackout. Um, I never knew I made that many sounds while cooking under duress. I think that the biggest thing is, you know, I, I said kind of like through confessionals and whatnot that you're playing a different game. You sincerely are. I'm really great at thinking on my feet. I have to do it in a restaurant every night. Like I'm in my restaurant making calls and kind of catching, um, falling, things from the ceiling all the time. Literally juggling. Yep. Literally. Yeah. Like putting out actual real physical fires. Um, but <laughs> like in the main competition, it's not just the extra time for me that 
that screwed with me. It's the lack of people to collaborate with in that time. Right. And so it's like, I love a well thought out dish. Like I'd love to R and D, but it's not that it's not active. It's not like we get the night to think about a dish with physical action to it. We just get to fret about it. And my, you know, my mom always says worry is a waste of the imagination when you're in your own head overnight thinking about a dish, but not being able to actually work through it with somebody you talk about it with somebody or actually physically do it yourself. Um, you'd be surprised at like how much doubt can see. And then, um, that, that actually had a practical negative effect, which, you know, the people, when I came back to the, um, Burbo challenge, um, you guys saw that I kind of floundered a little bit and I realized I was shopping contingencies all the time. So I was always shopping for two dishes in case one dish didn't work out, which meant I was oh. doing twice as much thinking. I was doing twice as much shopping because I was like, if this does, if this doesn't work, I don't want to just serve nothing. And then um, when everybody in the main competition found out about that, they were like, dude, you have to stop doing that. Like you have to stop divesting yourself of this dish, pick a dish, shop for that dish and commit. Um, and so that, that, that was the conversation we had kind of after I got you know, the harsh criticism, um, because I was, I was literally doing two dishes all the time, which is why, like when I actually did two dishes, it went great. Cause like, um, I had <laughs> yeah. always been thinking about two dishes. One was just my contingency plan if everything went south. So I had to relearn how to shop, you know, on that note. Um, I had a question from, uh, Brian Hickson, a fan of the show, um, says, have you ever asked the Top Chef contestant how they prepare for grocery store trips on the show? Maybe there's more that happens off camera, but can you keep up with a budget amidst all of that? Not to mention, how do you plan? How much of the everything to buy for 10 hundreds of people can't be something they really master working in restaurants because you order for multiple days at a time. So how were those grocery trips? We don't really get too much of that. Are you like counting up how much money you've spent as you're doing it? Yeah. I mean, a lot of us, even though like we run, well, honestly, not that many seasons and people in the season run restaurants, you know, private chefs like Robert or, you know, Evelyn, this is a sweet spot for them. But most of us have done that kind of work in the past where we're doing small caterings or catering for X number of people or doing private events. So that math comes easier than you'd think. And I think it's that mentality of like home chefs watching you cook restaurant wars is like, mind-boggling but to people that have opened restaurants it's more reachable it's still impossible and hard but it's reachable right the same thing with shopping it's like going from a home person shopping for their weekly groceries to like what we do is a huge jump but going from what we do catering an event for 100 people which we do kind of all the time it's not that hard to to make that jump and um you just make a really good list a really good prep list and then there were a couple times like i loaned nick some money um, when I was Whoa. under and he was over. Yeah. And you can do little things like, Whoa, breaking news. Yeah. You could, I don't know if can. this is, if you, if, if the magical elves and Bravo is gonna be happy with this. Yeah. I, I'm, or you can share ingredients like Robert and I would only buy garlic. One of us would buy garlic and the other person would buy shallot. So you like, you can, you can share ingredients if you want to. Mm, alliances. I like it. Maybe that's the softer side of Top Chef coming through. Cause maybe 2009, they would never do that. But <laughs> no, it like, would have been like, like, like when the guy wasn't yeah. looking, you would like throw the cabbage out of him. Yeah. The pee puree. It's like that. No, but like, yeah, Robert and I would be like, you get oranges, I'll get lemon. Like you get garlic, I'll get shallot. Like we would split ingredients to kind of maximize our budget. I wanted to ask you about growing up in Jamaica. It was this part of your bio. I was fascinated by what, what part of the island did you grow up in? I use the word grow up lightly because I've gotten some heat on Reddit, but basically so my parents have been together since they were 13 and they went to high school 
uh, met in high school and like have been together ever since. And they kind of sold everything and just started vagabonding around um, Europe. And then they did the Caribbean as like, you know, people did when the world wasn't so large and small. Um, and they did all the islands in the Caribbean and then they went to Jamaica and met a bunch of people and just started returning over and over to Jamaica. Um, and they were looking to buy a house and my father went out to buy a house, uh, look at a property to buy a house. And he stumbled upon this like very, he got lost and he found this like 300 feet of beachfront in the middle of nowhere. It's in a place called Westmoreland, Jamaica. Um, and he just like bought it <laughs> and, um, him and my mom, my dad's in, uh, was in real estate in Ann Arbor for a while. And he's kind of a, I don't know how to describe it. He's the kind of person that like has vehement passions for a period of time. So like, he was like, I'm going to build a resort. And so he like drew it and was part of construction and like laid the cement and built the foundation and like built this small family resort in Jamaica. And we kind of grew up in between, um, Ann Arbor and Jamaica with my parents. And because my mother was a teacher, you know, we would get pulled from school and we'd get homeschooled in Jamaica. Um, and we'd live there for, you know, two, three months at a time for my entire life. And my dad was two weeks here, two weeks there for my whole life. Um, and my parents were together, but, um, so it was never, it's not like a broken home thing. It was just like a very bizarre juxtaposition of kind of going to Jamaica and being in Ann Arbor, um, for my whole life. And it influenced your cooking clearly. Yeah. I think I didn't know it at the time. Like when you're a kid, you're not like, this will be influential, but for activities, for example, like we would have to, in order to cook, uh, it was a very rural village that we kind of set up shop in. Um, and so in order to cook, you would have to get charcoal, like go to this charcoal field where they burn wood into charcoal. Um, and so in order to like cook, we would walk to this charcoal field that was like three miles away, like load up charcoal and then bring it back. And that was like an activity, like kids in Ann Arbor are like playing soccer and like in Jamaica, I'm going to get charcoal and then going to fish boats and buying fish and then going to little shacks to buy like rice, um, and salt and stuff to cook. And so the activity that like we did with our friends in Jamaica was cooking. Um, and because my sister and I had access to like more disposable income, we would often fund those trips. Um, and so we would like do these like cooking feasts kind of pretty regularly. And it just became a part of like what we would do. And it's, it sounds really bizarre, but it was the activity. Um, it was going to mango groves and like picking mangoes or it was learning how to harvest coconuts from like 20 foot tall trees. And like all of these things that are day-to-day life or, very young people in Jamaica that we kind of learned over time by living there on and off. So I was cooking and learning to cook at a really young age, but for the people that I was learning from, it was kind of laughable that I was like 13 and didn't know how to do like debone a fish. Right. Like that was, it was like, wait, what? Like (laughs) I'm at home, like making peanut butter and marshmallow fluff sandwiches in Ann Arbor. And then I'm like coming and learning how to make dumplings from just flour and water um, on a beach. And so it certainly set a seed of like wanting to know more about food from a very young age, but it was more fun based than like passion based, I guess. If you could say. I really loved your through line for the finale. I wanted you to talk a little bit, if you could, about your restaurant marrow and the hunter gatherer, uh, no food waste theme for your final cook. Um, and just how much that means to you that 
that element of cooking? They fly us to Tucson, right? And like originally everybody was like, womp, womp, Tucson. But then once we got there, it ended up being like really cool. And I, you know, just in, in reading about Tucson, um, I found, you know, that there were a lot of commonalities between ingredients that were available in Tucson and ingredients that are available in Michigan. So things like venison or bushberries or acorns, um, some of the whole grains, like a lot of that were common ingredients. And so immediately I was like, oh, I can treat this kind of like building a marrow menu. Um, and I just, you know, I kind of wax poetic about it on my Instagram, but I just think food should speak to a time and a place. And I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about the current food system and how, um, changes that need to be made. And so to me, I don't, I don't want to feature pineapple in February in Michigan. Um, it's not good for the planet and it doesn't really make sense. Like pineapple is better eaten in the Caribbean where it grows, you know, or in Hawaii where it grows. Um, and so my menu was kind of a tribute to like Tucson and like being in Tucson and that in combination with being me in Tucson alone, kind of on an island. And featuring the misos that I did um, was kind of my way of bringing Detroit to Tucson to kind of create a hybrid of those two things because I couldn't I couldn't bring a bunch of stuff from Detroit, but I could bring this like shelf stable miso with me that really reflects everything that I love about food, which is like turning trash into cash. I want to know how to churn my own butter. Tell me. Oh, it's so easy. It's so stupid easy. I remember we used to go to this like stupid, well, it's not stupid, but like, you know, the Renaissance Festival and like... It, or my dad would have us, I'll tell you the real way. Were you reenactors? No, I was, no, we would just like go. Um, is that like the most Midwestern thing? I don't know. Um, <laughs> or like my dad would put heavy cream in a Ziploc bag and make my sister and I, it's the perfect dad activity to keep your kids busy. He would make my sister and I hand churn butter in a Ziploc bag. But basically you just whip heavy cream until the buttermilk separates from the butter fat and then you strain it. So heavy cream in a KitchenAid mixer, saran wrap around the top so that you don't get cream all over your goddamn kitchen. And then whip it until it breaks. You have the buttermilk and then the butter fat, put it in a chinois or a strainer, and then it strains off the buttermilk. And so the buttermilk went into my ice cream in my final course, and the butter was the butter that I served in the first course. How did, did it turn yellow? The butter, it depends on the quality of the milk and how high the butter fat content is. But yeah, it does. And then I can infuse it with certain things. I want to get like really fancy circa 2003 about things? Oh, hell yeah. I would say that if you do churn it, like salt it and let it sit because the salt will pull whatever remaining buttermilk is left in the butter out of the butter. So if you just make it and don't salt it, your butter will have some water in it. It's more likely to go bad. The reason why butter is shelf stable is because it's high fat, low moisture content. Um, so you risk having your butter go bad faster if you leave too much buttermilk in it. And that's how they make cheap butter. They just leave more buttermilk in it. Um, so if you salt the butter, once you're done straining it from the buttermilk and then give it like an hour or two, or even overnight and then massage it, you'll get like way more buttermilk out of it. And then your butter salted, which is a great kind of benefit. So speaking of great father moments, Tom's dad jokes, did they ever get old? <laughs> Click yous? Not for me. I think we have the exact same dad joke humor. So, and we're the only people that are laughing at our jokes. So it was perfect. Like he would laugh at his joke next to me while I was laughing at my joke. And that was like. <laughs> That's what we did. Because <laughs> you heard a lot of them in Last Chance Kitchen. I mean, oh, yeah. that's basically what Last Chance Kitchen is for, is just for him to do his comedy act. Totally. And if they liked one, they'd make him like do it again. So it's like you got to hear the same bad dad joke like twice in a row. It's 
brutal. Can you give us a rundown? Let's let's get your uh, commentary on the final uh, courses here. Your first course was a venison and beef heart tartare with sourdough miso and smoked butter. I told the audience at the top, uh, I had Evelyn's dish was a little unsalt on the unsalted side. If we were scoring it, I felt like um, Kevin thinks your dish was better than Evelyn's. And I just want to hear, did you feel that way that you had the best dish, the second best dish, the third best dish? How, how did you uh, score yourself on that course there? Because it looked, I would order that dish in a second if I saw it on a menu. Um, so how did it turn out for you? I think it went well. I would agree with Padma that like my salt could have been a little bit higher. I had koji rubbed the heart with koji that I um, brought from home too. So it was super funky. And I think that for the judges, um, Eric, it was like not Eric repair's bag. He, um, I, you know, I don't know that Eric repair has ever been forced to eat like beef heart tartare that's been Koji rubbed. Um, so I think it definitely didn't hit with him. Um, Padma wanted more salt. I, I, I think I was probably in the middle on that one. Um, mm. But if, if only because it was something that maybe they hadn't seen before, whereas Evelyn's crudo, like they've seen so many crudos that tartars too, right? But like, I think making my own butter and the reason for making my own butter was like the ethos of the menu to follow. I think they kind of got behind that as yeah. at least driving a creative narrative. It's not like groundbreaking food. Like I did not make twill butterflies. So Buddha had me had me on that. <laughs> so beautiful. I always like asking chefs about your local food scene, what, your place in the local food scene. I know very little about Detroit other than the Coca-Cola chicken wings at Flowers of Vietnam. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the only thing. George is a friend. I've not had them, but I have been told that when the Pistons get good and I am asked to go report there, that my first stop is to get Coca-Cola chicken wings. <laughs> For those who are listening... At home uh, in the Zoom, Sarah just uh, did the whole uh, facepalm. He's never coming to Detroit, <laughs> right? Well, no, that's the thing. Like, like in, in Tom and I, like our travel destinations are directly proportional to the success of the NBA team, and we will never meet, right? Like, I've been to <laughs> Memphis and a million times, and Milwaukee, but I never get to Detroit because there's never a demand uh, Pistons content. But I'm hopeful. Hey, Sarah, when we were kids. The Pistons did win the 2004. Oh, I used to watch. I have a Ben Wallace jersey. Yes. Nice. That was the last time that I gave a shit about the Pistons, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. So tell me about what you're working on in Detroit, the scene there. I've got friends in Detroit in sort of areas that are, that are sort of up and coming and would love to hear kind of your back of an envelope like take on the food scene, what drives it and also your place in it. I would say that like, I'm relatively new to the Detroit food scene. And so it feels kind of weird to be an ambassador for it. Um, I don't have the deep roots here that a lot of people that cook here do have here. I'm an Ann Arbor kind of, I guess I, I moved from Ann Arbor to the Detroit scene a couple of years ago. So what I know of it is basically what has happened in the last like six to eight years. And, and um, it's an exceptional city. There's a lot of, um, agriculture happening in the heart of the city. And then there's a lot of, uh, you know, Michigan is a huge producer of uh, both produce and um, protein um, for our area in the Midwest. So um, not just Detroit, but kind of Michigan as a whole is a really beautiful place to be making food right now. Speaking specifically to Detroit, um, it's growing so quickly. So the kind of people's departure out of Detroit was very rapid. And 
people coming back into Detroit is is much slower. But I think over the past couple of years, specifically in the like last two or three years, I think that there's been a lot more density. And that's our biggest problem is that, you know, we can have exceptional restaurants here, but we don't have the density of people living here to really sustain a bunch of really awesome restaurants. So unlike places kind of like um, I was recently in San Francisco and they have exceptional Michelin star dining and exceptional cheap eats. And there's just no middle, right? In, in Michigan, we have a lot of middle. Um, and we're just, um, it's kind of hard to fill out the really top end dining because there's less of a market, um, to service for that. Um, so I think that what we're trying to do at Marrow is service to very kind of not contradictory, but different goals. We're in a neighborhood. So we want to be servicing that neighborhood and being like a neighborhood restaurant, but we're also using ingredients that, um, cost us a lot of money to manufacture because we get them all whole. So we bring in whole animals multiple times a week. We have a butcher team that breaks down all those animals for our butcher shop. And then the restaurant functions kind of as a, um, we joke about calling it our trash to cash, but like we take everything that the butchers don't think they can sell retail and we turn it into our restaurant. And so the menu changes really regularly. Um, we're not the kind of people that put an order in with farms. We contact farms. And, we, you know, the other day I was like, my friend Andy, who runs a couple of farms in the city, I was like, Andy, what do you have? He's like, I have Napa cabbage. So he just brings 20 pounds of Napa cabbage and we're left to kind of figure out what to do with it. Um, and that's how we run Marrow. And um, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of fun. And in the wintertime, our menu is mostly potatoes. Um, but we do some preservation in the summertime to keep things interesting. Um, and we do as much as possible to introduce people to the people raising their food, because I think that that disparity is the biggest problem with our, with our food system is that people are scared of getting to know more about their food and they should be because the food system is really broken and scary. Um, but we allow them a way to meet the people growing their food, um, to get more familiar with how their food should be grown and then to empower them to make those decisions both when they're shopping with us, but also when they're shopping and eating in other places. So yeah, that's, that's kind of like narrow in a nutshell. So I want to get back to this, um, the courses here. You got second course of squash dumpling with the corn husk broth, miso, uh, the puree and this three sisters salad. So they thought that the pasta was a little bit thick, but I, I thought that looked delicious to me from my couch. Yeah, I think it was, you know, editing is huge. Who is it? Sean Brock just recently posted something about like rules everybody should live by. And the first one was like, finish a dish and then pick one thing to leave off of it. I think for me, it's finish a dish and pick three things to leave off of it. Um, editing is so important. And I, I do it with my team here. And so I think in the vacuum that is Top Chef, I, I needed to do a lot more of that. Um, and that dish, I think if it was just the tortellini that were filled, they were filled with the squash miso and squash. Um, if they were just in that corn broth with some hominy on top and the tortellini were thin enough, I think that would have been like a stellar, simple dish and hindsight 2020 and just like, damn it, <laughs> you know, rabbit ballotine with apricot chestnut nerve salad. Yeah, that was a dumb dish to do for my for my entree. <laughs> it was so hard. I was like, she's shaking her head. <laughs> <laughs> I've ballotined turkeys for Thanksgiving this past year. We did like kits for the butcher shop. We sold like meals to make at home, and I was like, let's ballotine turkeys. And everybody was like, no. And then we did it. We like stuffed them with stuffing, and it was a nightmare. Um, and so I was like, let's <laughs> shrink that like ninety percent. Do it with rabbit. Um, and so a lot of my day 
genuinely, like I, d- I think I did five rabbits. I balloted, like I completely deboned them. I made a, a farce, like a sausage to stuff them with. I turned all the livers into a sauce. It was a tall order for the day. And I think so much of my time was spent trying to get that right. Um, that I, I wasn't paying attention to whether or not Robert was like rolling the pasta thin enough. And I wasn't paying attention to whether or not my dish had too many components. So I think like that was probably the Achilles heel of my final menu was just like wanting to show full utilization so clearly in this one dish where every part of the rabbit was put to good use that the idea took over the actual execution. And I hate that about food. I hate when it's a cool idea and the food sucks. And so it's like, it turned out to be this, like, just, it sucks. It's like, I, I hate when thought, you know, Trump's flavor, it should never do that. Like food should fundamentally always be delicious first. And then everything else is, everything else is cream on top. Right. But like that dish, I was so committed to like sending home this thing that I had sold them on. Um, and this dish was like the, right. Like the crux of it. Yeah, I needed I needed to not do that dish, but I I will also say like things happen. Like the circulators didn't, of course, like the one time. Yeah, yeah, the circulators didn't circulate properly, so like it wasn't cooked all the way through beautifully. Like it has been a hundred times when I've done it here at Barrel. Top Chef Illuminati, we gotta we gotta see if that Hell was yeah. uh, if someone Seriously. got in there and sabotaged Sarah. <laughs> yeah, so stuff like that where you're just like, okay, well, the ninety times I've done this rabbit ballotine before you know, instructed at this temperature, it's beautiful. You know, it's beautifully cooked all the way. They're staring at you, you know, you shut the bed. So that dish had the bones of being exceptional and it suffered from being put under a shot clock, for lack of a better word. True story. Tom and I, we were invited to Restaurant Wars Kentucky, had a lovely meal and a lovely experience, saw the absolute chaos up front, and we were served Valentine. Remember we had Brian's Valentine? Yeah. Brian Young's Ballantine. Which was my first exposure to Ballantine. What was it of? Chicken. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, and rabbit, you do the same temperature, same time. Like, you treat it just like chicken. But sometimes it just doesn't work. (laughs) You know, I think that dish was really fun for me to make and also brutal and stupid, but fun. (laughs) Fourth course, your acorn cake with buttermilk ice cream and calypso bean miso caramel. I mean, maybe the best dish that was served on the evening. From the responses, everyone seemed to love that one. Yeah, I love cake and ice cream. Like fundamentally, my perfect dessert is a scoop of ice cream on warm cake. Um, and I think acorns are so cool. People, you know, it's an it's a historic ingredient for Michigan and for the nation. But to make acorn flour, you have to blanch acorns eight times. And every time you blanch, you change the water. And then you have Whoa. to dry it and then mill it. And so very few people make what, like, why the hell would you do that ever? Um, unless you were starving, which, you know, obviously like ancient peoples were. <laughs> <sighs> so to find acorn flour is like impossible, but it tastes like gingerbread and it has no warming spices in it. So when you eat it, it's like a gingerbread cake of like, it has this warm, nutty, delicious kind of, it's, it's like a hug, right? But like, you're not putting cinnamon, you're not putting clove, you're not putting any of those aromatics into it. It just is that, that is the flavor of acorn. Um, and I actually had Robert make the cake and he was like, this is very weird. Um, and then he tried it. He was like, oh shit. Okay. I get it. This is great. So <laughs> I love that dish. And I, I learned it from a chef that I worked for, um, eons ago. 
And it's just kind of been something that I've always wanted to recreate. Lastly here, did you feel like you had a chance to win after after you finished everything? Did you feel like up at the judges table that you could have been top chef? It's a mental game for the entire competition. And I would say that my Achilles heel was I never thought I could win it. Um, I didn't think when I got sent home, I was like, okay. And to be, to be honest, like, um, my fiance, when I decided to go on the show, he was like, you have to believe that you can do it or you shouldn't go. Um, but I've always been so supported by the community of people around me that I've never had to just like Sarah Welch it through it. Um, so I did have a lot of self doubt and I had little goals, you know, I had benchmarks. I was like, I don't want to be the first person eliminated. And then my goal was to beat any other Michigan chef. And then my goal, once I got into last chance was to not, not go home on that first cook. And then it was to continue to win. Um, and then once I got back in the competition, I was just like, what the hell? And Buddha and I have this running joke where like, occasionally he would look at me and go, didn't you get eliminated? <laughs> Um, and he did it at the final table in front of Eric repair. He was like, whoa, 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 didn't you get eliminated? Um, and so it's like, I was kind of, I was just so happy to be there and so surprised that I was doing as well as I was because Michigan is such a small pond and I'm such a big fish here that to think that the cooking that I'm doing could compare with people across the nation, it is truly flabbergasting. And it's not to say that I don't believe in myself or my team. I do. I believe in us wholeheartedly, but us, right? Not me as a singularity. And so putting it under the microscope of being just a single person on this journey, um, I carried a ton of self-doubt. Whereas somebody like Buddha came in day one and he was like, I'm going to the finale. Or Evelyn, she said, I'm going to make it to the finale. It's just a matter of whether or not I can knock it home in the finale. I just wanted to have, you know, one, one day at a time. And suck the marrow out of the experience and really enjoy it because it's, it was just so, I was so boggled and flabbergasted that I was there. And so people are like, she, you know, she's so self-deprecating or she's so surprised every time she wins. That's genuine. Like I just am so thrilled to know that the food that we're making here, when put to the test against other chefs across the nation, like the food that we're doing at Marrow, which is the food that I did for the whole competition is worthy of praise because you know sometimes you just don't know and top chef is a really great way to know <laughs> it was great having you it was great having you on the show you were a sorely needed addition um, when you came back and thank you for giving us time especially given that you're at work and you're prepping i know i'm gonna go eat some good san francisco food uh, that's where i'm oh damn it work and we've had some really <laughs> nice meals you're right about by the way no no middle ground everybody can cook there yeah so it's like, there's no need for the middle market because everybody's like, well, I could make that better. And they're right. They probably could. <laughs> like, the great burrito, the great upmarket, my favorite Zuni chicken. I heard. Yeah. We had such a good time. Um, thanks for giving us time. Yeah. Tom, that wraps up another season. We will be back with you soon. Maybe we'll be inspired to do a rewatch. We shall see. We got to get help us get Buddha on the show. Can you make this happen, Sarah? Yeah. He loves the show. Okay. I'll text him right now and I'll be like, listen. You got to do it. Buddha, please come. And he'll probably ignore me, but we'll try. For Tom Haberstro, for super producer Anthony Mays, this is Kevin Arnovitz, and this is Pack Your Knives.
our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.